0: Uh, Imperfect is perfect. Perfection doesn't sell anymore. We want brands, advertisements, communications that are relatable. And for those to be relatable,
1: they have to be imperfect. This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Dr. Emmanuel Probst. Emmanuel works in brand thought leadership at Ipsos, and also teaches consumer market research at UCLA. He writes about consumer psychology for numerous publications like the Wall Street Journal and USA Today, and he's the author of the classic brand book, Brand Hacks. And today we're going to talk about his most recent book, Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation. Emmanuel, welcome to the program.
0: Steve, thank you so much for having me on the show, and it's a pleasure connecting with you and with your listeners.
1: Yeah, I think uh, our listeners will get an awful lot out of this conversation. Your book is fascinating. Um, I loved Brand Hacks. I think if anyone's listening and they haven't bought Emmanuel's first book, please go out and get that one right away. That has so much useful information about brand in it. And this book is is amazing. Um, before we dive into it, you work simultaneously in academia and you know in the industry helping clients. How does the, how does your work in academia sort of inform you know what you do? at work every day. Oh,
0: but thank you for asking. Look, here's the deal. In academia, you have a lot of great thinkers, a lot of great ideas. Yet, candidly, professors and academics are not very good at making the knowledge actionable. And then, conversely, in agencies, you have a lot of great ideas and you have a lot of great clients, yet, often, candidly, those are not necessarily rooted in Uh, hard evidence uh, or uh, philosophy, if you will. And so my goal in life, and the reason why I do both, is to reconcile those two worlds to bring the best of both academia and the practitioner's worlds to our clients.
1: I'm sure that's really powerful. I had uh, Dr. Marcus Collins, who wrote For the Culture on recently, and he's another expert that has one foot in academia and one foot in, you know, actual practitioner. And I think I think that's such a fascinating combination because you're able to you're able to bring you know the the research and those skills into the real world much quicker than most marketers can. That is correct. One thing though is I believe he teaches at Michigan. Yeah.
0: And I'm with UCLA, and so our team is better. <laughs> um,
1: okay. I well, think really. yeah. I think that's fair. I I get that. I'll yeah. make sure I let him know that. And we can sort Make of it. serve a little college war here. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love that. So your book, Assemblage, is fascinating. And it has such a unique title. And the mental model for Assemblage, can you tell us a little bit where that came from? I think it came from how cognacs are made. And it's a really complex, it's a complex book with a complex title. Would you mind sort of unpacking it a little bit for me? In winemaking an assemblage. So when I say winemaking
0: is, when we make a cognac or a whiskey or bourbon, for example, or champagne or wine, you do so by assembling from dozens, sometimes over 100 different uh, barrels and aging methods and grapes and uh, processes, and you do so to create a product that is unique, distinctive, and on brand. And that's the analogy, that's the metaphor for the book. That is to create brands, we, should, we don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. In fact, most of the time we do not, nor should we. What we have to do is to combine personal, social, and cultural attributes inspired from our society and culture and the economy and all that to create a product, a brand that is distinctive and differentiate it. And this book shows you how to do that. Yeah. It's so interesting.
1: There's a quote in the book that says people build brands like the way birds build nests can, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think it's a really, it's a, it's a great way to look at it. And I think there's a lot of people working in brand that don't really, um, concentrate on the fact that we're pulling from all these different cultural and places of meaning to build a brand. They think they're just saying it. We too often
0: think that great creators reinvent the wheel. Most of the time they transform something that is existing, repurpose something and uh, put it in a new context. And even the the inventions that we think are so great are not necessarily from the inventors we think they are. Uh, Let me just clarify this for you. Apple did not invent the Mars. Apple did not invent the personal computer. Apple did not invent the MP3 player. Um, Star Wars, Star Wars, it's heavily inspired from a book that came much before the movies and then in music is the same thing. Um, if you look at electronics, dance music is by definition, samples from different musics, different, uh, artists, if you will. And the same thing applies in cooking. If you think of the likes of Gordon Ramsay and J.V. Oliver and Alain Ducasse and whatever uh, chefs, uh, uh, Thomas Keller, French Landry, and so on and so forth, it's inspired from techniques and from ingredients and um, from what they learn from their mentors and from other people. So that's all to say that that's how we build a brand. You don't start from scratch. You hardly ever start from scratch. You assemble your brand and your product you're offering also based on maybe what's already in existence, but you can repurpose, reshape, reformulate, adapt or readapt to the existing market. Starbucks did not invent coffee. Starbucks did not even invent the concept of coffee on the go, so to speak. What Starbucks did is Howard Schultz imported a concept from Italy. And Starbucks uh, should created a place—that's a third place—that is neither the office nor your home, where you can indulge in a experience and or meet people. So he hasn't invented the concept of the social club, nor has he invented coffee whatsoever. It's a combination of culture and uh repurposing if you would.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Cause when you think about any type of art, any type of uh music and and you know brands, everything starts somewhere and it starts with culture and it starts with human beings. So you're really pulling together all these disparate ideas and and things that we give meaning to and maybe expanding on them or maybe improving upon them. So with with your model with assemblage There's like three dimensions to it. And the book is just fascinating. So like anyone that wants to learn more really about how brands are truly built, please get this book because it's fascinating. But there's three dimensions that you go through of the assemblage method. Can you kind of unpack that for me a little bit? Absolutely.
0: The book is structured in three portions. Me, my world, then the world. So the assemblage method to create these transformative brands is the personal the social and cultural me is the personal identity project and what this means is who am i meaning the individual the consumer who am i and who do i want to become and so the brand is not the hero the brand is in a supporting role the brand in and of itself uh, is not the center of attention. The brand is here to take its consumers, again, from who they are to who they want to become. And then there's the social aspect. So my world, and the social aspect is my community, my family, my friends, what I can touch, the people I can relate to around me, if you will. And then the world is the macro context, is the world at large. The world is uh, recession, the world is about The global warming, the world is about making a positive uh, impact on the economy. The world is about education. How can we educate people? And brands can do this. Brands can equip people with new skills to sell their products online. For example, brands have a role to play also in making a positive impact on the world. And so this method and this book is positive and optimistic and shows readers, meaning marketers, brand strategists, advertisers, brands, how to create successful, sustainable, transformative brands and do so while making a positive impact on people and the world around them.
1: That's what I love about your book is that it really is a positive how to and how to wrap your mind and your, your arms around how brands are very alive and always changing and not just a set construct that you tell people what they are. So I love what you said about the personal, about that it's the hero of the story is not the brand. You know, uh, it fascinates me, and you should probably run into it too, how many brands I run into that still think they're the hero of the story.
0: Yeah, and still what you said about brands being constantly changing, that is so important too. That is a great shift. Even seven years ago, You could establish your brand as a marketing professional. You would be mostly in control of what the brand stood for, and you could establish the brand and its foundations. And today, number one, the brand narrative is dynamic, whereby you interact with your audience and the brand is what they say it is. And number two is um, this co-creation process, whereby sooner rather than later. You would want to get the audience involved in terms of articulating the expression of the brand.
1: Yeah, it's almost like in today's world, there really is no choice. And when brands are stubborn about that, I think they lose. Because if you don't let your audience in and it isn't a conversation, if you're not trying to grow along with your audience's perceptions and how the world changes, they'll do it for you. They get to decide who you are as a brand, not you. Absolutely. You know, marketers sometimes think their brands are fixed because I think it's easier to work that way. But you use a really famous movie as an example of how much a brand changes over time. You talk about the James Bond franchise. You talk about the James Bond series and how much that's changed. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I really think it helps um, illustrate this concept. Yeah,
0: the James Bond franchise exemplifies the concept of the assemblage that is the big idea for james bond hasn't changed Uh, so james bond's been around now for what 36 37 movies i believe and at its core james Bond is a british spy and he is going to defy evil and triumph at the end and from a tactical standpoint he's going to use plenty of gadgets and from a more strategic standpoint if you will he's going to get involved in uh, um macro geopolitical type of debates right now what has changed a lot over the years what is evolving is the execution and what I mean by this is his bust was a male for the longest time and now it's a female, Judy Dench, Uh the secretary, Miss Monet Penny, was for the longest time that proper British lady, forgive my choice of words, and it's now a black woman. Uh, Q, Q is the one who provides the gadgets. Here again, Q was this very traditional British gentleman. You can see him like almost into hunting geese on weekends with the tweed and the elbow patches, so to speak. And Q is now not only much younger, but openly openly gay and uh, James Bond no longer fights the KGB because the KGB is arguably not as uh, relevant or at least not in its uh, original articulation as it was at the time. James Bond now fights more of an overarching power, sorry, more of a digital uh, overlord, if you will. So, So the components of the story remain the same. And the big idea for the brand hasn't changed. However, the expression for the brand has evolved nicely over time to make the brand just as relevant, if not more relevant now than it was before.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's such a great example because one, it's story. And I think brands offer or at least marketers forget that brand is story. And that, you know, it's a living morphing thing that the audience participates in by identifying with, by changing with their perceptions. And, you know, if you, if as a brand, you don't evolve and change with the times, you're, I mean, bad things happen when brands try to stubbornly stay who they are.
0: Very much so. I mean, I can't help thinking of Blockbuster, right, as an example, uh, whereby They didn't envision, that people wouldn't want to go to the the stores anymore. There are many examples like this. And look, it's the beauty. Personally, this is what uh, makes my role compelling and I think what keeps me humble, how brands can go through ups and downs and must always, always, always fight for relevance. Think of Barbie. I mean, Barbie was really hard 30, 40 years ago. And then Mattel had to make a lot of tough decisions because the doll was not relatable anymore for so many reasons. The brand was no longer culturally relevant. Now, all of a sudden, Mattel as creator of culture, if you will, uh, through the Barbie movie, the the brand is relevant, not only in terms of the, the toy, but in terms of literally a cultural phenomenon at this stage.
1: It all has to do with knowing the audience and knowing that the world has changed and speaking to the concerns, hopes, and dreams, what people are going through today, not 20 years ago.
0: It does indeed, staying culturally relevant and embracing who people are, who do they want to become, and how is the brand and product going to support them in this quest.
1: I love that about working in brand myself. And I think it's a constant challenge. And I also think it's something That I see people wanting not to embrace. They want, it's much easier if things are fixed, but they are far from fixed. So your brand has to be agile and has to be ready to morph and change and grow. As a matter of fact, that should be the joy of it. So that's why I love your book because I think you help people. You give them a method to look at this and it's a very complex thing to look at, but I love that there is a book that is actually a roadmap on how to do this because I think it's very easy for marketers and brand strategists to get a little lost in all the the avenues that brands touch and brand managers get very overwhelmed. And I really think your book is very, very helpful in that way.
0: Just thank you for your kind words about the book. And also the goal for this book is to give people the confidence to embrace this change. Because you said, well, we like when things are static. Yeah, we like to control things. And it's scary to think that as marketers, we lost some of the control. And it's very scary to embark in on some big changes. but uh, changes don't have to be big. You can evolve the brand incrementally. And again, the goal for this book is to give you the confidence and the tools to do so.
1: I really think it does. I think there's there's so much in this book. There's no way we're gonna be able to build and unpack it all, but there's a few things that, that I wanna keep talking to you about. So in the book, you talk about, you know, anti-heroes, saviors, and villains, and all the, I have a theater background. So, you know, talking about story and talking about how characters work, is so close to my heart, and I think it powers brand. So, what from your point of view, what the anti heroes saviors, and villains villains have to do with brand? Yeah, when the archetypes
0: that we can use in advertising, communication, and in brand strategy to personify the brand. So, I will try to keep it short. First up. What we want to do these days is we want to make the brand more personal, more authentic, more relatable. We want to reduce the distance between the brand and the audience. The best way to do this is to personify this brand either with someone or in its behavior to demonstrate this personification. And a good way to do this is to do this for authenticity and what I mean by archetypes is we're all familiar with heroes. And What I mean by this is you all know about Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and those guys. Problem is, while strong and aspirational, they're not the most relatable simply because most of us cannot jump from one building to another, right? <laughs> and the point of the anti-hero, the villains and saviors, is they're relatable. An anti-hero is someone who is going to deliver on something heroic, yet someone who is flawed. And as such, in the audience, we are going to side with the anti-hero because he's not perfect. And as long as she or he is trying to improve, um, we accept the flaws also because we know that we are not perfect ourselves. And in that regard, um, James Bond is an anti-hero, for example, uh, because He can defy villains, yet he's challenged with, how do I put it nicely, uh, substances and his relationship to the other gender, right? (laughs) Uh, And villains are also very relatable because they are sympathetic in their own sense. And if you think about villains in Austin Powers, for example, they are uh, really relatable. And that's how you see general models used uh austin powers inspired villain in an ad for the super bowl and uh, this villain says so it's to promote the ev line of cars that gm is bringing to to market electric cars that gm is bringing to market and this villain says uh the tagline is i i'm going to take over the world but Uh, before I take over the world, I must save the world before I take over the world, right? And that's the purpose of the electric car. So just to say that this is very relatable because he's very, you really want to give him a hug, right? And the saviors, of course, so the saviors are the people that are going to get us out of trouble. And in that regard, Jeff Bezos, when he says, well, if life is no longer possible on Earth, I'm going to invent life on Mars for us. Now, whether it's this true or not, and if it will come to fruition, that's not even the point. The point is the savior gives you hope of a better future, and is the woman or the man who is going to get you out of trouble.
1: Right. I think those are just such powerful archetypes for us to think about. And the reason the antihero, you know, or the flawed hero, is so powerful, is that we see ourselves. You know, we all, well, well, at least I would think most of us want to do good, but we know we're imperfect and it's so relatable. So it's interesting when you think about it in a brand context, how a lot of times when marketers or, you know, brand marketers or brand managers are thinking about their brands or business owners are thinking about their business, they want to portray themselves as perfect. You know, you see social posts and you see companies portraying themselves like, we're perfect. We never do anything. We never... We're never struggling with anything because we've got it all together. I don't think that's very believable.
0: Yeah, that's not relatable and people don't want this anymore. And that's how you see, and rightly so, an agency like Ogilvy in the UK pledged to completely drop Photoshop from using Photoshop to retouch its creative executions, its ads, its models, I should say, uh, specific characters in the, in the ads. And that's because people, perfection, in my first book, there was that chapter that was uh, imperfect is perfect. Perfection doesn't sell anymore. In some markets, it does. In in a few markets, you know, maybe in luxury and in perfumes and some forms of high fashion. Uh, But for the most part, we want brands, advertisements, uh, communications that are relatable. And for those to be relatable, they have to be imperfect.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting how imperfection is what lets the light in and gives you access to something because you feel like you you can have part of it. You can you relate to it. So I think, you know, the most famous artists, when you think about, you know, musicians or entertainers, we usually relate to the ones that are a little bit imperfect and that struggle with things and yet have incredibly powerful brands. So when you think of a Taylor Swift. She goes through a lot and she's very autobiographical about what she's been through in her music and has built one of the most powerful brands, period, right now. So because of imperfection.
0: 100% because she makes her struggles so relatable to uh, millions of people. I think that She exemplifies from a marketing standpoint, this notion of reducing what I was talking about earlier, reducing the distance between the brand and the audience and being relatable and this ability to personify the brand. She exemplifies that success better than anyone else right now. Yeah. It's amazing. Absolutely. It's fascinating from a marketing standpoint. She is the most astonishing case study for the last, what, 20 years plus, right? Meaning this ability to relate to a girl next door in in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, or Cincinnati, Ohio, or pick anywhere, when in fact, you know, let's face it, she's making dozens of millions of dollars and um, she doesn't live like everyone else, nor does she have to, I don't blame her one bit. In fact, commending her on her ability to communicate, to reduce that social distance with her audience and to say i'm just like you girl even though uh she no longer she is in a way because she suffers emotionally but she's not in in her day-to-day lifestyle
1: yeah i think she she does something that brands all brands should aspire to is that she grounds herself in everyday things that everyone struggles with so you know she knows her audience incredibly well and i think is able to let them see her struggle, which is an interesting thing for brands to talk about because I think a lot of times any type of brand struggles, they don't want to talk about it and maybe they should consider doing it. Um, So talking about artists and talking about, you know, whether it's musician or any other type of art, um, there's a part of your book that talks about how, you know, a lot of artists can't read music and some, some visual artists don't even make their own pieces. And, you know, it's a huge conversation about what is art, but I think that has a lot to do with the idea of assemblage, because, you know, a lot of artists are pulling from things that we recognize and putting them together. So can you talk a little bit about that? Again, there
0: is an assumption that as marketers, we should just reinvent the wheel. And really, we don't have to. And the creations we see around us most of the time are not original or Uh, The artists we admire, those artists that are the most talented, uh, they might be talented, but not always in the way we may think. And so what I mean by this, as you suggested, Steve, is, for example, Farrell Williams, 13 times Grammy award, uh, sold millions and millions of albums. Obviously, Farrell Williams doesn't know how to read music. And that's not some gossip that I read on TMZ. He got deposed by the Marvin Gaye state. And there is an excerpt of uh, this deposition in the book. And let me tell you, as my kids will say, it's cringe, right? Because Phil Williams has to admit on the that he doesn't know how to read music and in a similar vein, Jeff Koons does not produce his balloon dogs himself. And Michelangelo had plenty of assistance and stuff and Andy Warhol had an entire team at his workshop that he called The Factory, by the way. The name in and of itself gives it away. And in cooking is the same thing. Gordon Ramsay, Alan Dukas, those guys haven't cooked for years. The part is not for Gordon Ramsay to slice carrots, nor is it for Pharrell Williams to sit down and write music. Their real talent is to have an artistic vision and to then assemble the right teams and the right elements, attributes, to deliver on that vision. And here again, um, so I call them the assemblers in in the book. And here again, I think that's what brand strategists, marketers, advertisers, and brands should do. Um, That's what they should focus on, as opposed to try to uh, be someone they're not. I'm not a graphic designer myself, as an example. I, I don't really know how to do this. I'm not good at it. However, I envision how I want things to look like at the end, and I then gather the right skill sets, the right talents to help me deliver on this vision.
1: Yeah, and I think that's an incredible model for, for brands because it's, you know, brands are part of culture. They're part of what's going on. They have to be fluid, so you're going to be borrowing a little from a here and there, and... You know, to stay relevant, you have to be part of culture. So it's not like you have to sit in a in isolation and come up with this one original thing. It's going to have reference points from all sorts of other places. And it's going to be a collaboration of everyone that builds the brand. It's very seldom one person. It's almost always a team of people, you know? So I think that's I, I think that's a really cool thing about your book is that you really I think help marketers understand that. It's about the vision and, and it takes a lot of different talents to actually execute it.
0: Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, really the, the goal for this book, the, the point for this book is to show you an optimistic way to build these transformative brands and to empower you to do so. To say, you, just like Pharrell Williams, Alan Ducasse, and Jeff Koons, and Picasso. Of course, to a different extent, uh, you can follow the same process to create brands and products that are distinctive and transformative.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's a great point, and I think it's a it's a wonderful way and a wonderful positive way to have people think about how brands are built. Um, so in the in the book, you look at brands, you know, I, I think this happens a lot with when people talk about brands. they always reference big brands. You know, it's always easier to talk about an Apple than it is a smaller brand. But I love how you talk about big brands, but you also talk about smaller brands like Faro and Ball. Why do you make sure that you do that? Yeah,
0: well, look, I work for Ipsos, which is um, one of the largest market research firms in the world and, and the largest publicly owned market research firm in the world. What is beautiful here is we work with very, very large brands, not going to name names, but as you can guess. We work with a lot of Fortune 50 and let's say Fortune 10. With that said, 93% of us don't work for a Fortune 100, okay? Only 7% of us work for a, a Fortune 100. And the reality is most of the wealth, the business, especially in America, is in small and medium businesses. And it's one thing to go to market when you are Apple or Airbnb. But what does that mean for the boutique hotel next door and for a personal trainer or for a, a business that operates 10 stores plus an online presence? And all this to say that I'm always keen to, yeah, we can look at the big brands as we should, the big case studies, but also it's really important to scale all this down and look at how smaller brands are successful when they don't have even the 10 of the marketing budget of those big brands. And you know what? In fact, quite frankly, I find their success, those success stories even more so compelling, right? Uh, how did you build your brand from scratch and how do you manage to establish a presence when your marketing budget is Something along the lines of 3% of your competitors, right? And as such, I like to zoom in, as you said, on a brand like Farrow & Ball, which uh, produces 130,000 gallons of paint uh, on a given year and has uh, a few dozen shades in sharp contrast with someone like Sherwin-Williams that moves something like 2 million gallons with dozens if not hundreds of shades of paint. So, and the answer to this question, by the way, and of course, you'll have to read the book or listen to the book to know more, but the answer to that question is to create a brand that is distinctive and differentiated.
1: Right, and I think uh, I think when you go smaller, when you start to look at smaller brands, it gets more personal and it gets, a, there's a little bit more of a laser focus on, on being true to the brand and knowing what it is And it's more, you know, you don't have the resources, so you better be pretty clear.
0: Absolutely. It's, um, both, uh, more important, but also I would argue, um, that's a strength for smaller brands over the big brands. Uh, let, let me explain. It's hard for big brands to be relatable, to feel local, to feel personal. If you're a small medium business. You're inherently local, personal, relatable. And in that regard, you know, think of the likes of Starbucks or, or and any big franchise that's trying to get involved in the local community. It's very, very hard when you operate 11,000 stores to make those stores feel local. Um, in sharp contrast, that's really easy if you're, again, a personal trainer or local coffee shop or call it a regional brand, right? And that's an inherent strength that you can bank on from the get-go.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, being rooted somewhere and not not being the largest is a competitive advantage in a lot of ways from a brand point of view because it helps you have an identity that people agree with. So I love that you cover that in the book because I think a lot of brand books, you know, go to the biggest example. They'll talk about the Apples or the Nikes and they don't dive down into brands that are smaller and the strength of small and medium-sized brands. So I think that's something that people would get a lot out of in your book because I I love how you, you dive into that and really examine the advantages and disadvantages and how marketers of any size can use this framework to be more successful. So how, from your point of view, you know, what inspired you? What what drove you to put this book together right now? Because this book is, I mean, it is deep. There is so much in here, so it must have been an incredible amount of work. So, what really inspired you to do this? Well, what inspired me to do so is how can we build better
0: brands? And looking around me, I see, frankly, too many brands and so many products. It's so overwhelming. And. How can we create brands that are more meaningful to people? How can we create products that are making a positive impact on people and the world we live in? And so my message is there's a way to do marketing to make a profit while making a positive impact on people and the world around them. So I want you to do this book to Also, shift this role of the marketers are the bad guys and they try to sell you more crap. And let's completely shift from this. This is no longer Madison Avenue and and Draper. Those years are long gone. Um, In fact, on a side note, with WPP collapsing the Young & Rubicam and J. Walter Thompson brands, you know, what is left of Madison Avenue anyway? Oh, by the way, there isn't even one agency left on Madison Avenue. So uh, those days are gone. Uh, marketers now have the opportunity to make that positive impact on people. We have the opportunity to do so in a conscious way for the planet. And we don't do this at the expense of profits. We can still make profit and make more profits. We are just doing this in a more responsible way and in a different fashion, uh, with a focus on quality and meaning more so than quantity. And this is why I wanted to write the book, to show this optimistic outlook on marketing and brands and to arm people with the tools they need to empower people to create those transformative
1: brands. Yeah. And I think you've done an excellent job. I mean, I think the book. Is fascinating. It's really deep. It's a great book to reference, but it's also a great book to just sit and read if you're a marketer or, you're, or if you're just a small business owner and you're trying to figure some of this stuff out. It's very inspiring. And I do think, like, you know, marketing in general over the years has gotten a bad name. Everyone thinks, oh, marketers all you do is try to sell people stuff. And that's what I love about your book is, you know, brands are not just an existence to sell stuff to people. A lot of brands have a lot more to aspire to than that. And the more I think that brands are committed to more than just selling their products, that there's more meaning in what they do. You have happier employees, you have better customers, and you fit somewhere. You can't be all things to all people. So deciding what you care about and really caring about it is a really strong brand move.
0: 100%. And as search. I'm really optimistic for the days ahead for marketing as a discipline, and brands as entities.
1: Yeah, I can tell and I, it's really infectious. You know, you talk in your book about the new era of brand relevance and I think that's really exciting. I think you're very thoughtful about brands and you're very thoughtful about getting away from just the old school type of branding and and where it's moving now. Your books are amazing. So, you know, I got I I got Brand Hacks when it first came out and started following you. And really enjoyed that book. There's so much value in that book. And then uh, Assemblage is incredible. So I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever you do next. And if anyone listening hasn't read uh, one of Emmanuel's books, please go pick it up. We'll put some links you know, on your landing page that we put together for this episode. Because these are really good books. And what I think is great about both of them is they're not books that just encourage you to go out and sell at all costs. They're very human. And they're very motivating and they're very positive. So thank you for adding that into the marketing world. I think it's a big deal.
0: Thank you, Steve. And if I can add, I have two good news for our listeners. One is the book is also available on Audible. So you can listen to the book if your learning style is more towards listening rather than reading. And the second good news is I'm not the one reading the book. So you won't even have to try to decipher the accent and just focus (laughs) on the book. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's great. I, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It's, uh, it's been fascinating. And thank you so much for, for what you contribute to the marketing brand world through your, through your books. Yeah,
0: thank you, Steve. Thank you for your kind words. Really appreciate you having me on the show and really appreciate connecting with your community today. Thank you, guys.
1: Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.